With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. Do you think this ability to super connect with people and indulge in the unknown, we're losing this a little bit. And your premise is that questions and questioning, opening up someone's life, almost as if you're like cracking the, the shell of a peanut, this is a skill that's no longer around as much. When you think about it, there was no Google back then. Now, just about any question you have, you could put it into Google or Quora, and you're going to get an answer. So if you're looking at the laws of supply and demand, the supply of answers is filled. We got answers up the kazoo. But how many great questions do we have? How many people who ask great questions do we have? There's much more demand for that. I want to get to the idea that questioning not only is a way of connection, but it's like this superpower. Questioning and figuring out how to dig in and open people up provides you experiences and surprises and expands your horizons. That is the superpower. I am so excited to have... Cal Fussman, writer at large at Esquire on the podcast. And Cal, I first heard him on Tim Ferriss's podcast a couple times, and I read about you in Tools of Titans. And I've been reading your stuff ever since, listening to your podcast. You've written some New York Times bestselling books. You have your column in Esquire is what I've learned. How many people have you interviewed overall? Whoo, overall. I never calculated that, but for people about, I guess you'd say iconic stature, probably four to 500. I'm going to have to ask you what iconic stature means. Like, I feel like you're dissing some people there. Uh, well, no, people who everybody knows. Like, okay, so you've interviewed uh, Gorbachev, Kobe Bryant. Of course, Muhammad Ali was a classic story that you wrote, a front page story for Esquire that you wrote. Uh, Al Pacino, Serena Williams, Larry King. Larry King, you have breakfast with every day when you're in LA. Um, You also have a great podcast, Changing Your Questions Changes Your Life, or no, Big Questions, but you say Changing Your Questions Changes Your Life. And uh, so, so, but reading your story, before I get into all the people you've interviewed and how to interview and amazing things you've learned and experienced, I remember reading you were in Brazil traveling around the world when you were younger and you met your wife who's still your wife, I don't know how many years later, decades later, you met your wife while you were both standing in the aisle of a bus? So here's what happened. So I was traveling around the world for roughly 10 years. Why? Okay, we'll take it back further. (laughs) So what happened is I came to New York to be a magazine writer in about 1980. And there was this startup magazine called Inside Sports, no longer exists, that 
this came out to compete with Sports Illustrated when Sports Illustrated was in its heyday. And the guy who was in charge of this, his name was John Walsh, later went to ESPN, and he was the guy who created SportsCenter. So he brought in an amazing group of people to get in on this magazine. And I was 22, and I basically left my job in St. Louis, packed what little I had in a little Honda, drove to New York. What was your job in St. Louis? I was working at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, covering the, being the second guy on the Cardinals baseball team. I was very young. And so the plan there was for me to understand all the sports in the city and then eventually become the columnist. But I kind of understood very quickly that if I did if I did that, if I stayed in St. Louis even a few more years, basically my life was fixed. I would know everything that was gonna happen the rest of my life because I'd be writing a column in that newspaper every day. And so I got in my car and I drove to New York and Inside Sports was started by Newsweek magazine, which was a big weekly magazine back then. And I remember I got in the elevator to go up and meet John Walsh the first time. And it was a Friday at about four o'clock. And on this elevator, there was a lift that stacked with cases of beer. And the elevator got off on the floor of Inside Sports. The cases of beer preceded me and went into the office of Inside Sports. And it was just a big party. And I knew, like, this, you got it right there. This is where I got to be. And then, not that day, but Hunter Thompson would come by and you drink with him over at the Cowboy Bar. Uh, David Halberstam, Pulitzer Prize winning yeah, yeah. writer, uh, would come by. And so to be a young writer in this environment was the best. And let me ask you about that. And I'm sorry I go on tangents. I really no, apologize. No, that's fine. I'll, I'll go with you. But... Uh, <laughs> Because uh, I do, I am really curious about what that first thing you said to to this Brazilian woman on a bus was. But it seems like what you just described is fascinating. So they're creating a sports magazine, but what they're doing is aggregating these great writers who technically are not sports writers. Like Hunter S. Thompson was not known for he wrote a lot about sports, but he was not a sports writer. He was this guy, he's this inventor supposedly of gonzo journalism. Right. And and David Halberstam, his best book or his most well-known book is The Best and the Brightest about the you know, the exact the, the cabinet members around the, the Vietnam War and the Kennedy days. So you bring in these writers and say sports and is that, do you think that's, uh, that's an interesting way to kind of build a, a magazine? That was the whole structure of it. I, obviously, there were a few people who were sports freaks that were at the foundation of the magazine. But there was another writer named Pete Dexter, a novelist. Yeah. Uh, just real talents. Pete Dexter, I mean, was he ever the editor of the Daily News? He was a columnist in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, you're thinking of Pete Hamill. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, uh, also a very talented writer. Uh, Pete Dexter later became a uh, screenwriter and, and novelist. But th these people were really talented. So when you went to the bar after the day's work, you really were pushing yourself to get the most out of yourself. Sounds like you're pushing yourself to drink a lot of alcohol too. Well, that, that was that <laughs> Just too. beer all day at the <laughs> office. And then afterwards, when you go to the bar. And there was a guy named Pete Axthelm, who was a columnist at Newsweek and also a member of this cast, a great writer. And you would just be around these like, amazingly creative people. And you couldn't, you, you woke up every day wondering who you're going to meet, what great thing is going to happen. And I have friends, a writer named Gary Smith, who later went on to win many uh, National Magazine Awards for Sports Illustrated. I met him during that time. And it was just a wonderful time for growth. Like you're 22 and the whole city is yours. That's what it felt like. And the problem was, like a lot of startups, uh, this was an artistic success, but not so commercially. And Newsweek pulled the plug after a couple of years. And it was devastating because this wasn't a job. This was a passion. And I was in on the ground floor. So I, I could walk in the office and say, hey, Cal, go to Pittsburgh, uh, interview the Steelers. They're going for their fifth Super Bowl ring. And all of a sudden, it wasn't there anymore. And I'm looking around and I really don't know what to do. And so obviously the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, I need a job. But, but where? Because that's going to be a job. This was a passion. This was life. So Did you I, cry? I don't remember crying. And you know why? There was a, a final scene. This was like right out of a movie I, I, where a venture capitalist uh, bought the magazine from Newsweek and like ran it into the ground and... All of a sudden, there were like rumors. There's no more money, and so people had just gotten their like their checks. So everybody ran over to the Chase Manhattan Bank to cash their checks, and the bank freaked out because they weren't sure that there was money in the account to pay these checks. And you had like 50, 60 people online, and. I remember the New York Post came and was snapping photos through the windows because the bank actually like closed, locked the doors. This was closing time anyway, and then put down uh, drapes or whatever to try and conceal what was going on. And ultimately, after hours, they somehow funding came through, whatever, and, and everybody got their money. And it ended up at the bar with everybody kind of laughing. So it, it was, you know what? There was a moment where I, I remember being in a bar with John Walsh and he 
he brought up the song, Kill All the Brave Horses. And that always made me feel really sad because that magazine was a brave horse mm. and it, it went down. Mm. So what, and I want to ride more brave horses. What am I going to do? So I say, you know what? I always, like, I wanted to travel. I met a, a woman in France or from France and she was telling me that you could go to her town or nearby and pick grapes. So I had this like romantic vision in my head, like go to Montpazier to pick grapes. And of course I was reading like Hemingway and uh, a lot of the authors, John Dos Passos from back in the thirties and the forties and Europe was where they went and cut their teeth. So I said, you know, why don't I just take a little time and go to, go to Europe and then try and figure this out. So I went to Europe with this friend that I mentioned, Gary Smith, and he had, was just coming out of a bad marriage. It's a, it's a, I say bad marriage, it's just like a lot of marriages, it's not good or bad, it just it wasn't the right fit. And so he was in this stage where he just wanted to go out and experience the world because he kind of felt all cooped in for years. And so what happened is he went out first and we agreed uh, to meet in Munich for Oktoberfest. But in the meantime, he went over to Italy and for whatever reason, he went into a train station and bought a ticket without even knowing what the destination was. Just got on the bus and he got off and he just started walking and a guy pulled over and asked him if he wanted to ride. And the guy was a little crazy, but brought him into this town of Castle Viscardo. And within, it was a very small town, within a half an hour, like everybody in the town wanted to come meet Gary. And he spent three or four days there and they put him up. Is that because he was just new, like a new thing? Yeah, it, for somebody to, from abroad or America to come into a place where you don't normally see an American, it's, it's, it's like a new show is in town. And so everybody in town knew Gary's name. And later Gary came and met me at Munich and he was telling me about what had happened to him. And he actually took me back to this place. And as soon as I walked in, was, Calvino! And we, we stayed there, we picked grapes, uh, we did some work, but it wasn't really work because you'd go to do a job and after, an hour, like, let's drink some wine. <laughs> Another hour, time for lunch. It was, it was really joyous. Mm. And I just fell in love with this idea of waking up in the morning and not knowing what was going to happen. I had a taste of it at Inside Sports, but this was... 24 seven. Do you think, do you think you can achieve that sort of feeling 
or do you try to still achieve that sort of feeling in daily life? Because now you have more of a routine with family and, and work and, and so on. And as you get older, of course, we get, I don't want to say addicted to routine, but we get used to the routine that we're in. And, and it's a little harder to kind of just travel around without the responsibilities and so on. But do you think there's a way to still kind of create that feeling of every morning I wake up and what a surprise, the sunlight's coming through the window and what will happen next? That is an awesome question. My, it's an awesome question because it's something to ponder with the intent of, wow, could you do that? Now, in New York, 100%. In LA, 100%. In St. Louis, Missouri, I'm not sure. Maybe. You're really down on St. Louis. <laughs> no, I love St. Louis. That was the point. Uh -huh. I, I loved it so much that I was scared. If I don't leave now, I'll never leave. Because I did love it. And it was one of those situations where you know, okay, if I'm writing a column in the daily newspaper, there's basically that's, if you're a newspaper writer, that's as high as it's going to get in, in St. Louis. And you're going to just do that five times a week or four times a week. And that is going to be your life. So could you do that and still wake up every day not knowing what was going to happen? Much, much harder there, I think. New York, I think you can go a whole life and I actually did this at the end of a long trip I'll tell you about. But I came back to New York after 10 years of traveling without knowing what was going to happen when I got up. And I started walking the streets of New York. I had a map and I would just take a magic marker and draw through the street as I walked through it. And I just literally was just walking, not north to south, Every day I would wake up and just go to a different part of the city and walk. And this is not necessarily when you would be what is considered young, because if you had spent a couple of years at Inside Sports and then spent 10 years traveling, you were probably 35 or 36 at this point. That's, that's correct. I was about, let me, let me yeah, try and get the exact, exact date. I think I was about 30, maybe 34. Mm -hmm. 35 yeah when I was walking the streets and and that was right before I ultimately married the woman that I met on the bus so what happens is I start traveling around and my friend th this is to, to show you like where our minds were at the, the hunger for new experiences because we we're also connecting wow the more new experiences we have the more we can write about. I'm, I'm, I'm certain it's not much different in comedy. You get more experiences, you have more places to go and have fun with. Sure. So I just became addicted to this feeling of getting up in the morning and not knowing who I was gonna meet, not knowing where I was gonna stay, 
And then don't forget, there's no cell phones back then. You, I, I would like, get on a bus and after a while I became very good at this where I would be, buy a ticket without knowing where it was going. And I'd get up the steps and start walking down the aisles looking for an empty seat. And as I'm walking down the aisle, like I know this is a crucially important decision because I got to find somebody just by reading their face or the way they're sitting. I got to know, are they interesting? Will they trust me? Can I trust them? And then I have to make a decision after seeing all those faces. Okay, which seat am I going to choose? Because I have very little money. And so I couldn't keep this trip going by spending night after night in a hotel. I basically had to sit down next to somebody and start a conversation and often in a different language. Or when I say a different language, they're speaking a different language. I'm maybe speaking English or fragments of this new language and we're communicating with our hands, do charades. And by the end of the trip, I needed that person to invite me home because other than that, I had no place to stay. And so what happened is this took me to places I couldn't have imagined. And then when I got there, the same thing that happened to my friend Gary in Italy would happen. They immediately would start calling their friends and their relatives to come and meet me and a party would break out. And the party might go a day, it might go two days. People who are at the party may say, come to my house and then have their friends come to meet me. And this is how I got passed around the world. Do you think this is um, a skill set that this this ability to kind of almost super connect? So you so so there's two things that are that are happening there. One is you're indulging almost in trying to see how little you could know about how your experience is going to unfold. So you don't know where you're going to go, where you're going to sleep, how you're going to make money who you're going to talk to, what friends you'll make, and so on. So you're trying, almost trying on purpose to know as little as possible. Whether you realize it or not, that's, it's almost like you, were, like you said, you were addicted Correct. to it, that's this right. not knowledge. Now we have so much knowledge, it's hard to have that feeling or to replicate that feeling. The other thing is, now if I want to, um, the equivalent of walking down the bus trying to find a place to live is I'll go on Airbnb and make a connection there. That's right. And, Connect with someone. Oh, I don't have a lot of money. I'll just do it as cheaply as possible. You go as cheap to expensive as possible. So, or Craigslist or whatever. Um, and and not only that, but if you walk down the aisle on the bus, maybe the person sitting next to the empty seats got earbuds in. Yeah, it right. It wasn't like that. Right. Back like people didn't need. People don't need to to connect with you now, or they don't want to because they're already connecting to some you know, interworld. <laughs> or, or an outer world that they want to connect with. Yeah. I mean, 
Maybe they're listening to your podcast, right? And they don't want to be. I'm preventing you from from living. <laughs> so, 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 like these are skills. Like, so, like I remember reading, you know, or, or listening on the Tim Ferriss podcast. You would you would try to find the the grandma essentially. You can ask what's the best way to make great goulash, and that would build the whole story and 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 everything. But but do you think this ability to kind of super connect with people and indulge in the unknown? We're we're losing this a little bit, and and your your kind of premise is that questions and questioning and and opening up someone's life almost as if you're like cracking the the shell of a peanut. This is this is a skill that's that's no longer around as much. It's still always going to be around, but it's not around as much. I I agree with that, and I also think that what happened is interviewing went to television. And it stopped becoming interviewing. What we think is an interview now is often a, a confrontation because what makes news is a, some kind of back and forth, some kind of crossfire. Hmm. Uh, whereas when I'm sitting down with somebody, I'm not trying to play gotcha with them. I'm not trying to prove my point over theirs. I'm, I want to listen to what they have to say. You're not going to get that on Fox or MSNBC uh, anymore. Well, not only that, they're, they're only in three-minute clips. So, like, so Steve, the podcast producer here, his last job was uh, TV. He was producer of Good Morning New York, which is the top-rated morning show in New York. Uh, and Steve, what's what's the difference? Yeah, it was like three. It was like three minutes, and it didn't give you a, a lot of time to get in depth, you know, with the person over there. And so that's every interview on TV now. It's just three minutes, no depth. And I think you two were speaking about it too. Like James doesn't necessarily need notes and cards because he doesn't have to feel like, oh, I only have three minutes or four minutes. I have to make sure Cal is plugging this or getting that. Oh, well, that yeah. It's more expansive, you know. It, you know, it's an excellent point. Uh, because what's happening now is you, if you've got the producer putting something on a teleprompter or, or a card saying you've got to hit these points and you've got the guest or the subject coming onto the interview prepped by a public relations expert, get these talking points across. Basically, there's no real free flow back and forth Everything has been scripted. Yeah, it's not a conversation and it's transactional. So, right. so, so again, like the art of questioning has been almost replaced by, you know, the, the sort of glut of media and attention gathering material that's all over the internet. So, so, and, and, and again, that, that loss of human connection that, that, that's in the internet, not, not blaming the internet, it's just this evolution of, of communication. And uh, you know the art of questioning also is this way of uh, of really opening up and, and connecting directly to people instead of over an online means. And on on top of that, what's happened is because people can now measure uh, how many times like a certain person is being clicked upon, uh, the producers are then noticing, okay. This person gets four million clicks. This person gets two hundred clicks. 
uh, the person with 200 clicks, that's an interesting story, but we're going to have better business if we go to the person that gets 4 million clicks, even if there's no story there. Let's just follow him. Let's right. just follow her and maybe something will happen, but it doesn't even need to happen because as long as a person says something, 4 million people will be attracted to it just because they will follow everything that that celebrity does. And so what happens is we stop looking so much for the interesting story and are just following the people that everybody knows and will click on. And so that's even, it provides even less of an opening uh, for good questions. Right, like it becomes your, it used to, you know, your self-worth becomes the number of followers you you have. Like people kind of, because because we always sort of put ourselves in a hierarchy just by being primates, that has become the hierarchy people tend to put themselves in or media tends to put people in or whatever. That's the, the top of the food chain. Right, as opposed to even things like, I don't know, there's no, there's no other metric of quality really. Like quality has gone down the tubes and, repl- and is replaced by likes. Uh, but, but I want to get to the idea that questioning not only is a way of connection, but it's like this superpower, like questioning and, and, and kind of figuring out how to, how to dig in and open people up that provides you housing and income and experiences and surprises and expands your horizons. Like that, that is the superpower. That's like your mutant superpower. It, uh, yeah, I I, th- I think it is. And like not, if you were, if this was the Justice League, you're like question man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would. But you know the the problem with that is I'd have a costume with a question mark on it. And you look and like I the think, Riddler. I was already taken by the Riddler. <laughs> it's it's an interesting thing because the more that I think about it, the more that I see. Like what questions can do for people, you you can show your intelligence by asking a question. I I remember when I was a freshman in college, and I I was on a path to be a sports writer, and I went to the University of Missouri, which has like a big journalism program. It was so competitive that there were in this little town of, oh, they, they couldn't have had more than 50,000 people, but there was a town newspaper, there was a journalism school newspaper, and there were two university newspapers. And, and so there was so much... So many people were going there to be journalists. There was so much competition that everybody wanted to be the person who wrote about the University of Missouri football team because it was the biggest, uh, most eyeballs were on that. And when I went as a freshman, I realized, you know, I was going to have to wait like years in order for the seniors to graduate and then the juniors to move on and graduate. And by the time I was a senior, then I could get in the locker room and practice the craft. And 
I just, I was ready to get in the game. And so I went with the older reporters in the same car while they drove to these away games and just sat in the stands. And I watched the games just because I want to be close to it. And around the fourth or fifth game, there was a big upset that Missouri had pulled off on the team from Nebraska, which had a national championship winning coach and a great, powerful uh, tradition. And I just felt compelled. I had to get in the locker room. There were questions I had to ask. And so I looked down and I saw there was a photographer from the school newspaper I was working at. And he had a press pass dangling around his neck. And I thought, well, he's not going to go in the locker room. He's done taking pictures. What if I got his pass? Would that let me in the locker room? Then I could ask my questions. So I got down to the field. He said, sure, I'm not going to use the pass. Put it around my neck. I got in the locker room. And I can remember looking around, and there were all these people that I wanted to be. They had the job that I wanted. And they're asking the coach questions. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I had this one question and I just asked it. And there was silence and the coach, like you could see his eyes like go up in the air. He was really thinking about the answer. And then he started to answer, and I saw everybody, this was the days before tape recorders, everybody had their pads out, and they were busily writing his answer. And I knew in that moment two things that happened. One, the coach had respected the question and given a good answer to it. And two, I looked around and thought, okay, now I'm one of you guys. Uh, and from that moment on, I had a very different confidence. Right, and, and, and what you showed there is that the art of asking a good question creates a career rather than necessarily knowing all the facts. So people sort of feel like, oh, if I know the, all the facts, then I have a career. But actually the art of knowing what question, like science is all about, people don't realize, science is not about knowing the secrets of the universe. Science is about asking the right questions about the universe and then testing those questions. And so it's really the questions motivate the career rather than having all the information, which changes constantly and is wrong constantly and, and so on. And I agree 100%. And when you think about it, there, there was no Google back then. Now, just about any question you have, you could put it into Google or Quora and you're going to get an answer. So if you're looking at the laws of supply and demand, the, the supply of answers is, is like filled. We, we got answers up the kazoo. But how many great questions do we have? How many people who ask great questions do we have? There's much more demand for that, I think. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I just want to say thank you to everyone listening to this. Doing a podcast is the activity that I've enjoyed most 
in these past few years. I've interviewed so many fascinating people. I've researched so hard and I've really wanted to bring the highest quality information about peak performance really to the listeners. So I hope you enjoy what I've been doing. I don't ask for a lot, but please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It will only take a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast. To see the show notes, just head on over to jamesaltucher.com slash podcast. While you are there, you can join my free insiders list to get notified when I post a new podcast. Once again, thanks so much for joining me on the journey of this podcast. I read that uh, when you're, and again, I just want to emphasize, you know, you're one of the great interviewers of all time. You've uh, in every field, you know, we mentioned a couple of names already: uh, Gorbachev, Serena Williams, Kobe Bryant, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro. You've 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 interviewed people from every walk of life and built a career out of it. And uh, uh, you know, again, the the imp- this is this has kind of created a whole career for you. This ability to to ask these questions. But but before an interview, I read. Uh, you sometimes write down a hundred questions you might ask, but then you throw it all out before the interview. Right, because what happened was I was doing an interview with F. Lee Bailey. The the, lawyer. The lawyer. And I went into that interview. Esquire had started this column called What I've Learned, which is wisdom in the words of extraordinary people. And I had a sense that I was going to be good at this. And so I wrote out my questions for F. Lee Bailey and put them all in a little book. And I had this little book in front of me. And I, it was, I learned a lot in that hour and a half. And one of the things that happened was he looked at the book of questions and I could just see disdain. <laughs> there was I don't I don't know if disdain was exactly the word because it it was sort of a an arc between disappointment and disdain. Like he wanted something better. And there was a little disdain. You know, that's that's best we're gonna have here. And I'm working through this question. And finally, he told me this story. He said, you know, when I'm in court, I never use like, a piece of paper to ask a witness questions. Uh, often what I do is I'll say, James, tell me. Did you order, I'm just approximating this, did you order a vanilla milkshake on March the 3rd of 2004 when you were on 84th Street in New York? Now, of course, you're going to look back at him and think, what does this milkshake have to do with the case? This case is about a bank. And you're thinking, I, did I order the milkshake? I don't, I don't 
Uh, and then you say, no, I, I don't know. I don't know. And then Bailey would go back to his desk and take out a piece of paper and say, well, you know, I noticed in this deposition that you said that you did, in fact, order a vanilla milkshake on that night. And he would put the paper in front of the witness. Didn't you, James? You look at it. Yes, yes, I, I did. I, in fact, I remember I had a vanilla milkshake that night. And didn't you, James, didn't you drive a Toyota between New York and Akron on the 5th of July of 2009? And did I, did I have, it was a, it was a, it was a rent-a-car, was, was it a Toyota? I, I, I don't know. And then he'd pull another piece of paper and he'd put it in front of you. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. I, I did. I drove and I rented that Toyota. And James, didn't you sign the paper in that bank that basically admits guilt? And the witness would be flustered and say, yeah, yeah, I did. Even, even when he didn't do it. So he would, in, in Bailey's mind, he would trick a witness who was crafty and was you know, obfuscating the truth and use this tactic to get him to admit the crime or to settle out of court, whatever it was. And so after he said that, I realized, okay, I gotta, I gotta pitch the book aside. Because without the book, what he's showing the witness is he's got this confidence of he knows the facts. He, doesn't, he only needs the paper to prove to the guy who, who actually did the action the facts. He knows the facts without the paper. So it's kind of this weird power to not have the paper in front of him. That's right. And it goes beyond that when I think about it. When you're interviewing somebody, like both of us were looking each other in the eye, neither one of us has papers we're equal in a sense. When the reporter goes in with the sheep of questions, it's not really equal. Yeah, it's like a status thing. One person's got questions written out and the other is in the dark as to what the questions are gonna be. And so in a, in a certain way, it makes it fairer, it makes it more comfortable, I, I find, uh, because I noticed when I did have questions written out, is before I tossed the questions away, it, like you would often see people like leaning over to see what the question was. And so it makes it much more comfortable to just have a regular conversation. Yeah. And, and which, which builds on the connection and, and also builds, it kind of um, emphasizes your, it's, it, it's, it's improv, it emphasizes your creativity and your willingness to connect with the other person, which I'm gonna finally circle all the way back to my first question, which is what <laughs> question did you ask this beautiful Brazilian woman on a bus that led to a decades long marriage? Like I can't imagine, like I see you know, beautiful people all the time. I would never walk up to them and then say, ask some question that would create a decades long marriage. Okay, so here's, here's the thing and here's the setup to this. 
So all that time, I'm walking down the aisles for 10 years looking for people. If I saw a beautiful woman, beautiful young woman next to an empty seat, I would not sit down next to the beautiful woman because- Because every guy's doing that. Number one, number two, look, she's not taking me home. Right. I, I need a conversation to happen that is going to make that person say, wow, wouldn't it be great if this guy would come home and meet my friends and, and I became friends with this guy. Whereas it's for a beautiful woman, she's probably being hit on all the time. And there's just very, in my case, just look at me. <laughs> it's my case, there's not much chance. I'm not a pickup artist. So I'm not gonna sit next to her and get her to invite me home. I thought, I thought. And so for years, if I met a beautiful woman, it was not that way. And I get an assignment to find the most beautiful beach in the world. I was in South America and I had heard about this beach called Jericoacoara in Brazil. And like the most, um, just a beach that was like no other because it had like sand dunes from the Sahara set next to crystal waters of the Caribbean. That's those, the juxtaposition of those two. Plus it was so rustic. There were no hotels. I was even told when I first heard about it, they don't take money there. You, to get there, you have to go on an old school, old school boat and then take a mule and you carried a sack of rice on your shoulders to trade uh, with a fisherman for a hammock in front of their little home uh, so you can sleep and, and they would feed you too. So I got to get to this place, got to see this place, Jericoacoara. And I get to the nearest big city, it's called Fortaleza. And as luck would have it, I arrive on a Tuesday and Friday night, the first travel agency tour of Jerry Quaquata is taking place. A bus is gonna leave from Fortaleza at midnight on Friday. It's gonna take us halfway and then they're gonna have these dune buggies take us the rest of the way. Don't need a mule, don't need a sack of rice. Perfect, get my ticket and I get one of the last tickets. And so, I wait till Friday, I'm there at night, aboard the bus. What I don't know is that that morning, that Friday morning, a Brazilian woman called up the travel agency and said, I'd like a ticket to Jericoacoara. Well, I'm sorry, we're all sold out, uh, but I gotta go. Well, the next bus is gonna be in two weeks, I can sell you a ticket for then. Nah, she says, I, I gotta go today. Says, but we got no seats. People heard about it, it's the first tour, and it's all sold out. Well, if somebody cancels, can I get their seat? Absolutely. Give me your number and I'll call you back if somebody cancels. Well, she gives her number, but she doesn't wait. An hour later, she calls back. Any cancellations? The guy's traveling, she says no. Hour later, she calls back. No, hour later, hour later. Every hour on the hour, 
she's calling back. And finally at 10 o'clock at night, the guy says, look, there's just, there's no cancellations. Everybody wants to go to Jericoacoara, but I can tell how much you really want to go. So how about this? For half price, you can stand in the aisle. Great, she says. Runs off to the bus station. So I board just before midnight. I take a seat on the aisle in the middle of the bus. It's completely dark. Waiting, waiting, waiting for the bus to start. Just before the doors close, I see this silhouette come up the steps, turn down the aisle, and is walking, 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 and stops right next to me. And I look up, and I know, like, there she is. That's my wife. You knew that. Without, I, I can't even see her face. And so the bus starts rolling. And after a couple of minutes, I look up at her and I said, would you like my seat? Because I know. And she looks at me and says, no, and turns away. Uh, obviously, she didn't know like I knew. And that was the start of what is now 26 years of marriage. So wait, so you're not really, okay, so you asked her, would you like my seat? That was question number one. Right. Clearly it didn't work. What wouldn't happen next? Well, what was really good is that it was about a, it must have been like a three-hour bus ride. And so after about an hour or an hour and a half, the guy sitting next to me by the window stood up and he just basically put his arms on her shoulders and said, no, no, you sit down and put her in the seat. And that was how we started to talk. So essentially, that guy was the alpha male, just <laughs> completely like took control of the situation, put her down. You were the beta male. She had rejected you, but now just fortunately you're sitting down next to her. Well, here's the thing. I didn't, I was certain this was gonna work out, but I wasn't, I, I, my sense was, look, if I try to be aggressive, uh, this is not gonna work out. So I was just playing a long game, I think. Right, okay. And, you know, I, I haven't really gone back to, to examine like, what, what was going on. I think my, my feelings was I'd look up to her, get, try and get a glimpse of her. And because again, you got to realize this is like 10 years of reading body language. It's almost like the, this period of traveling um, leading up to this moment, which then led to your you know, hundreds or thousands of amazing interviews with Esquire and your podcast and other places. This was all, this, these 10 years traveling and asking questions just to survive um, is almost like the, the Beatles in Hamburg where they got their kind of <laughs> initial 10,000 hours <laughs> under their hood um, without the world seeing, without the world judging their every moment. That's a great way to put it. 
never thought of it that way, but that's exactly, I do tell people when they ask, they see people, when I, like I give speeches, talks, and people want to know how to interview, but they're always saying like, what question do I ask? And they don't understand that I could give them the same question that I have, but it won't get the same response because it is, it, they may not ask it at the right time. They may ask it in a tone of voice that makes them, the, the person asked step back. They may ask it in a way where the inflection is not curious because if it's my question, it's really not their question. It has to come from a place within. So how do you think you, um, I mean, just in terms of, let's say, skipping those 10,000 hours or right. hacking it a little bit, how do you, I mean, I guess I can answer this for myself, but how do you get in touch with that inner curiosity with each guest or with with the girl sitting next to you on a bus or the grandma who you want to stay overnight with, you know, so so that you can have a place to live or... Muhammad Ali or Amy Schumer or whoever it is you've interviewed? Well, what, I, what I've done with, with crowds of people is to show them that they can like, reboot their curiosity because very few people stop and think about what's happened to our curiosity. When you're four years old, you're asking your parents up to 400 questions a day, driving them nuts. Is that, is that a fact, like 400 uh, questions a day? I, at least one survey I read mm-hmm. stated that a four-year-old can ask up to 400 questions a day. And what does a 40-year-old ask? Um, I don't know, but it's, <laughs> it's a lot less. I think they, from what I understand, four years old is the period where you're most curious because you cannot start to articulate or most curious through questions because now you have the command of the language to articulate and you don't know a lot. So it's natural to ask why, why, why. What happens is you're five, you go to kindergarten and there's this role reversal where all of a sudden it's the teacher who's asking the questions Mm -hmm. And the teacher is saying, if you have a question, you don't just blurt it out. You raise your hand and wait to be called upon, which in order to make the class function, it makes sense. But you've already now set up a dynamic where you cannot be spontaneously curious. You now have to raise your hand and wait for the chance to ask your question. And all you got to do is just start asking teachers in schools what happens to the raised hands over the years. By the time it gets to middle school, very few hands are going up because the curiosity is like slowly beaten out out of us. And if there is one hand that goes up with a curious question that makes them seem foolish, well, Back in my day, which is a long time ago, 
that person would be mocked by the rest of the class. Can you imagine what it's like in this day and age where somebody can go on their cell phone and say, can you believe what this kid just did? And now it's all over the world. And so I think people may tend to keep their cards close to the vest and not want to ask something that's going to get them mocked. And then you start to go through life and you get a job and you have a question and there are four or five people from the job around and you start to wonder, if I ask that question, I need to know the answer to do my job well. But if I ask it, everybody's going to know I don't know the answer. They're going to think I don't belong here. So they swallow the question. And what you were saying before about answers having like so much power, it's the leader is the one who has the answers, is the person to aspire to, not the person who has the question, because the person with the question doesn't know the answer. And so... I think what's happened is we've, we've lost this curiosity, but you can, you can get it back. You can reboot it because if you just can think of yourself as a child again, it's still in there. It's still in there and we hardly know anything. So I've, I've noticed what I do is I put, people through interviewing exercises where for two minutes they have to interview one another as if uh, they are the boss and they're looking to make a hire. And, and then I give questions for the same two people to ask each other. And they can see how after my questions, how much deeper they've gone, mm. how much more they know. Why is that? What, what do you think is the difference between your questions and theirs? Like, what, what's an example? Okay, uh, well, uh, one of the questions I might ask is, why is your best friend your best friend? Mm. As opposed to, what did you do at your last job? That's right. And or, what's the best lesson your father taught you? Mm. Which and, is how you opened up Gorbachev. That's right, exactly. And you see, and the people can see, after literally four minutes, I guess four minutes each way, so it's eight minutes, they can see by just changing their questions how much more they know about the person, how much deeper the connection they've made. I mean, you see people crying uh, at, at the end of somebody asking somebody why their best friend is their best friend because the person didn't expect to be asked that question. Maybe something was going on in their life at just that time that was really difficult and their friend came in and really helped them out. And all of a sudden that just flew to the surface. Well, it's like your, your experience with Gorbachev where you ask him, you know, he's expecting you to ask about like Reagan and nuclear politics and you were pressed for time and you suddenly asked, um, what's the thing you learned the most from your father? And he tells you this really kind of sad, almost tragic story about his father 
uh, being shipped off to World War II and he has this memory of eating ice cream the moments before. And that kind of really is such an important answer because it triggers for him the tragedy of war and why he wanted so badly to end the Cold War. And it becomes an important question, this, this almost off the topic question. And, and what happens out of that, which people don't realize because you have to be seated in the room and watching this, the subject respond to that question. But when, it's, when they're done, they want another question like that because you took them to a place that they're really glad they thought about. They, they would have never had that thought if it wasn't for your question. And once their mind has been flipped that way, they want to talk to you. I had this experience, I, I, I can't reveal the person, uh, but I was just interviewing somebody who's like one of the most famous people on earth. And quite similar, I asked this person a question uh, that they had never told the story and they'd been asked 10 million questions in their life. And you see the reaction on the person's face like, wow, I've never told that story. And when you can ask that question, you get back the respect and they will lean in and they'll, they'll want to give you better answers because the better question will get the better answer. The question that is canned generally gets you a canned answer. Yeah, It's simple formula. So I'm, I'm going to ask you a question related to the best friend question, which is you have breakfast every day. When you're in LA at home with your family, you have breakfast every day with Larry King. <laughs> so how did that happen? So I went to... And he's one of the greatest interviewers of all time, obviously. Yeah. And I had met him when I did, went to do an interview him, with him for Esquire. And then years later, he was doing his Soup to Nuts autobiography. And we connected on that. And so I helped him write that book. And when I went out to interview him for that book, he said, meet me at breakfast. He starts his day every day with breakfast back then. He's at a place called Nate Niles, kind of a famous deli in Beverly Hills. And so I walked in on day one and he had a lot of friends around him. Everybody was over like 75 at the time. And I just would come to breakfast every day. And then afterward, I would be able to interview him for the book. And so it became a habit. And I would say about... The book was done maybe 10 months later. And by that point, we had just been going to breakfast every day that it couldn't just end. We were friends. So what, what, what have you learned from him about interviewing? Because obviously, like, let's take the great interviewers out there. And a lot of times when you say this list of names of the great interviewers out there, people, there's a lot of mixed reactions because often these people are not... I don't know why interviewers, like the best interviewers out there are almost considered like a tear down from like the best intellectuals or reporters. But like, if you look at Larry King, Oprah, Howard Stern, these are the greatest interviewers in history, but they're not, they're somehow not considered in the same level of, of 
the intellectuals of the world, the ones with all the answers, even though they're the ones getting all the answers. And there's a great reason for that because oftentimes intellectuals will have trouble making the connections mm. in order to get answers. Where Larry is salt of the earth. Uh, he can talk to anybody. Uh, and not only that, but you sit with him at breakfast and everybody does come over, including like six-year-old kids. Mm. And he will connect with everybody. You think of Oprah and you're really lifting the level of genius because not above Larry, it's just in it, it, her, what she did was like being an Olympic diver doing a dive that has a, a higher di degree of difficulty factor because like Larry is sitting at a desk and he's got a guest and a mic between them and TV cameras. So Oprah is on her couch and got a guest and there's TV cameras, uh, but there's also an audience there that she's playing off, which as a stand-up comedian, you know that's going to completely affect uh, like every moment in the room. Right. So, so she's got a producer in her ear an audience in front of her, cameras coming at her from multiple directions, plus connecting with the guest. Now that's pretty amazing, I think. And at the same time to maintain that place of connection with anybody else who's at the seat, whether they are a billionaire or whether something tragic happened in their life and she's revealing the story. That's like pretty amazing. I, I like how you refer to it almost as like this Olympic level effort because when I see your interviews, uh, what impresses me and particularly as, you know, when preparing for this podcast too, it's the, it's, I, I see who you're about to interview, you know, when I'm looking down the list of articles or podcasts or whatever, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, what question is he going to, I'm not thinking of them. I'm thinking of what question is Cal going to ask to open them up? So like with Dr. Dre, uh, you know, I, I, I'm now spacing on the exact wording of the question, but like, you know, how many, how many hours did you stay awake for your longest, in, in a row right. before, for your longest project? Because that sort of, it's this weird question, but it sort of shows how passionate or hardworking, it's gonna reveal something a little deeper than just a number. And, and not only that, it's, it's a question that he's not gonna shy away from. Again, he's gonna think, wow, what is the longest I ever stayed awake to finish a project I was passionate about? And now he's gotta run all the different experiences through his mind, and that's probably going to make him feel good because there's going to be a lot of successful moments in there. There's going to be a lot of overcoming and, and triumph. And, and then he's got to settle on, I think it was 79 hours. 79 hours is the 72. longest. 72, okay. Uh, 72 hours. Not, not to embarrass you, correct your own, <laughs> your own interview. <laughs> so, 
And he's basically saying, look, when I'm doing these projects that I'm passionate about, I don't even think about going to sleep. It's just about getting it done and being in the moment with it. And what happened to me was after I got up to speak for the first time, I don't know if you know the uh, organization Summit. Yeah. They, they, it's an entrepreneurial organization. Yeah. They have events around the world. For two, two or three years ago, they did it on a cruise called Summit at Sea. And you get entrepreneurs from around the world come in, and great speakers. And this last year they did in LA, Jeff Bezos was there. It's, it's really high caliber uh, people that you can go hear. And so I got asked to go and speak about decoding the art of the interview. And I'm thinking, you know, you have you know, the CEO of Google there, Who, who's gonna come see me? But I figured, you know, it was a free weekend in the Caribbean. The hell? So I go to, to, to speak and when I arrive, the room is packed. N not only is it packed, but there are people crunched to the back wall. There are people sitting cross-legged in the aisles and there's a long line out the door. It's like being a performer. And I had never really given a speech before. And when I got done, it was a standing ovation. And I was like stunned. And I couldn't, I'll be completely honest, I couldn't understand like why there was this attraction in the first place. And it took me a minute because a long line of people were waiting to meet me afterward. And they were all entrepreneurs and they wanted to know what questions can we ask to hire better? So I was like speaking to the perfect crowd because they, all you have to do is make one bad hire and you could blame it on the hire, but it's really your fault. You interviewed them. You should have known. And so all these people knew that and they wanted to know how they can improve the way they interviewed. And so one of the first people came up to me and said, God, we, we're, we're this startup company, we're filled with passion, my partner and I, and we can't seem to hire people that are as passionate as we are. What questions can we ask to figure out how passionate they are? So I said, just tell them the Dr. Dre story. And the question applies to any business that's looking to hire passionate people. I feel like you should write a book like Cal Fussman's 100 Questions. And again, you said earlier, you could take your questions, give them to someone else, and they could get do it completely wrong or have it's all that. You know, there's kind of an element of the 10,000 hours that still requires actually doing something and enduring through it and, and having the experience and so on. But I feel like your questions are so interesting that just get writing the book, Cal Fussman's 100 Questions, will help people to kind of skip a level. Well, you know, I am going to work on a book, and it's a great concept. 
Because you can take like, here's Dr. Dre's questions. Here was the question you asked Kobe Bryant. Here's the question you asked Amy Schumer. Wow, now, this is smart. I'm glad I came here today, James. <laughs> I, 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 that's free. I, I don't charge for any of my ideas. So I would read that because I want to know. Wow, that's amazing. You know what? I'm going to really give that some serious thought. I was, I was in the process of putting together a book proposal, but what you just came up with is much simpler. And then it's a format too. It's like, don't sweat the small stuff. And then, they, then the guy wrote, don't sweat the small stuff for kids. Don't sweat the small stuff for parents. Don't sweat the small stuff in relationships. Then you can like oh 100 questions on a first date. Alphas was 100 questions for kids. <laughs> oh, no. Because oh, like when you talk to, like when I talk to my kids, they don't want to answer questions. It takes a while for them to open up. Like if I just say how school, they block me out completely. I have to ask like clever I'll, questions. I'll give you, and I'll give you a great example. This is a really good idea, James. Thank you. You're welcome. Go for it. <laughs> so there's a Nobel Prize winning scientist who was asked, like, was there a difference between the way you were raised and the way other kids were raised that enabled you to win a Nobel Prize? And he said, yeah, there, there was. And what was it? Well, when I was a kid going to school, uh, the other kids would come home and their parents would ask, what'd you learn in school today? And all the kids would say, nothing. When I got home, my parents would ask me, what good questions did you ask in school today? Mm. And it's just by changing the question, you can change somebody's life because now the kids got to be thinking when they go to school, well, what is, what is my question of the day? That's so funny. It reminds me of uh, a little bit Sarah Blakely, you know, the founder of Spanx. That's my favorite podcast that you did. Oh, thank you so much. Man, that was great. She was so great and so inspirational. But, but, and she said when she came home from school every day, her dad would ask her, uh, what did you fail at today? Right. And I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. And Ch changing the question changes lives. And, and then she went around door to door selling fax machines or something. Yeah. Something for like seven that. Seven years. And, and so, what a way to accustom somebody to pushing on through failure. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. But that's why these ideas, like 100 questions for kids, we just came up with two that are you know, life-changing for both the parent and the child. Wow. Like one won a Nobel Prize, the other became a billionaire just by the way the parent asked questions. So now you have formats. You know, as soon as, as, soon as I walk out this door, my literary agent is getting a call. <laughs> now, you know, it's, it's very interesting the way you frame this. Like how, how do you think in order to frame like that? How, like, what, what, what runs in your mind that enables you to, you, it's almost like you saw a business right there. And, and then not only that business, but it connects to this business and it connects to this business. Like, where does that come from? Well, so now you're asking. Well, I'm, all right, now I'm sorry. You know <laughs> no, what? No, but, that, but that's you're, fine. I'll I, tell you, I'll tell you. <laughs> One is 
I'm curious. I want to know your hundred questions because it seems like with each person they're different. And so it'd be a great way to, and you talk about in, in, um, I think it's your Ted talk, uh, uh, talk to the heart first and ask a question that opens the heart where so many people ask questions that are just for the mind. Uh, talk, you know, it's like what you said to Gorbachev as opposed to asking about nuclear weapons, you ask about his father. So you talk to the heart first. But now I want to think, what are the hundred ways you've done to kind of like open up the heart? That would be interesting to me, not only as an interviewer, but as, as a parent, as a, uh, you know, uh, you know, in relationships and, and in many different situations. And so I want to know, but then I'm thinking to myself, okay, as a business, business requires simple formats that could be scalable. And so you look at, again, I start to think of what's something common. Don't sort the small stuff it reminds me of where that format was so easy for him to slice off into, uh, you know, he sold like what, 200 million copies of his books um, because the format was so simple. He had written another book prior to Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. I think it was called How to Be Happy, but- <laughs> no, Nobody bought it. Nobody bought it. And it was when he did this Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, he created a format that was scalable. You know, we were talking before, when we met out in the street, uh, and I explained that I'd just been in Spain, and I was looking at a Picasso, uh, famous Picasso piece called La, La Guernica. And the amazing thing about it was how in the very beginning, he did this in a month, and it basically was a reaction to a bombing of a village in the Spanish Civil War. And so it's, you're basically seeing heads and mothers with dead babies and all sorts of images that just make you stop and ponder man's inhumanity to man. And the interesting thing to me about this experience was his girlfriend at the time was a photographer and she photographed this painting or this drawing uh, being done along the way. And you saw in the very beginning, so many more images, they're all over the place, different kinds of images. And then as the process moved forward, the work got simpler and simpler and simpler till at the very end, it was everything you wanted to communicate in the most simple form. And like you, in some way, did that like in a, in a just finger snap. I think uh, maybe that's my mute. I that's think my, that's your superpower, I'm simplify, man. <laughs> well, when, when you think of business, like you've started, what, 20 businesses yeah. more? Do you think that way to start a business? Yeah, you have to, you have to uh, think what's the simple, what's the simplest thing you can offer someone where they're going to say, I need this. And they might not even realize they need it. So you have to dart around with the right questions and you figure out, you, you know, like I was, we were talking, um, we were talking to Jim Cramer on the podcast the other day and I asked him, how can he simplify his life? And because simplification is a very important issue. And he said, well, first I would have to stop doing my TV show, Mad Money. And I'm like, no, 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 that's too complicated. Then you're changing, 
your entire career in life. Like you're stopping the TV show that made you, catapulted you to, to fame. What would be something else uh, you could do? And we kind of concluded, if he just wrote 200 words a month about sports for ESPN.com, he would fulfill this passionate passion in his life because he loves sports. And maybe that would help him find the right direction of where his next passion would be at the age of 63. And so, you know, you just, it's always the smallest steps possible. And you also, you want to make life easy for yourself. You don't want to work. You don't want to work too hard. It, it's, it's amazing. Like he can stop one article a day for wherever he was writing. Cause he writes like four articles a day. He could just stop one. Nobody would miss it. And then once a month, he could write 200 words for ESPN.com to bring alive this passion. So he felt that this part of his passion had been squashed. Yeah. And it was buried underneath all this work that he was doing. Because all he would talk about in the podcast was sports. <laughs> so clearly the passion was there. Wow. And But he just never thought about writing 200. No, no one's going to die. If you were e the head of ESPN.com and Jim Cramer calls you and says, can I write 200 words a month for you? You're going to say yes, of course. And yeah, it's not about the money for him. Yeah. this This is simply about doing his passion. Yeah. Well, I, I'm coming, simplicity has reached me like through the podcast uh, because much more complicated to be a writer than a podcaster. Yes. But let me ask you like, cause I deal with this. I feel with podcasting is great and I get to meet so many fascinating and interesting people as do you. I mean, your your list of guests is is, is you're, you're, you're starting, but it's, it's already like such a fascinating list of guests, but you're talking to them. So people don't talk to you. They don't get your story. So writing is where you get your story out there a little bit more. And I feel both are kind of needed still. I, it, it's a good point. I was just thinking of it from the perspective of the amount of time that it takes like for me to write something. Even if I was interviewing Kobe Bryant, and I then had to go back and go through the transcription and find exactly what he said and put it down in just the right way. Uh, very different from me just doing the back and forth. It's taped. I do a little introduction and it's on to the next. And there's something very Tim Ferriss about that. Yeah. You know, the four hour work week. Yeah. Which at the very beginning, I looked, I looked at that book and I just scratched my head. But now I'm kind of living it because when you think about it, I I would do for Esquire one issue a year, and this is years ago, every January. They don't have a January issue anymore. The magazines are shrinking. But every January, the issue was basically mine. It would be filled with these, what I've learned columns, uh, where you'd get these, we're talking about the word icons, but in, in an issue, you might have Jack Welch and Muhammad Ali and Donald Trump and first supermodel Lauren Hutton, Christy Brinkley. Uh, and it might be 20, 20 people of that ilk in, in the magazine. 
And it would take me a long time to do those interviews and put down those words in just the right order. Where what I'm noticing in the podcast is I literally, if, if, if scheduling could be done where all the people are in the same city, I could sit, I could literally sit in one place or even move around the city. I could do four or five of these a day. Yeah, and what I've noticed, and you're probably noticing, more people listen to a podcast than read an article. And not only that, but I think, I'm just looking into this, and this I'm going to ask you if you will come on my podcast and we can talk about this, uh, because you're already in the middle of the, the podcast lake. I'm just getting started. But it seems to me that you have this group of people that is like highly connected to the internet, wearing earbuds, uh, and they love this. There will be people who listen continuously to podcasts. And I'm thinking somebody like my dad, who's 87, he would never think of listening to a podcast. But now that I have one, now he's listening to podcasts. And if it's reaching my dad in some way, it's because now he knows he could listen to other people. Then I think there's a whole group of people who are not yet listening who are going to listen pretty soon. Right. Like everybody has either made the decision in their lives, I'm going to read books or I'm not going to read books. So everybody on the planet has already made this decision. And uh, with podcasts, because it is still, let's call it inning two out of nine innings, you know, there's a hundred million people commute to work every day. While they're commuting, they're not reading a book. They're usually either listening to music or they're listening to, or they have the choice to listen to music or listen to news or listen to podcasts. And people in the gym, I don't know how many people go to the gym every day, but they're not reading a book at the gym, but they are listening to podcasts. So there's a big audience that once they touch the world of podcasts, it's changed their commuting life, it's changed their gym life, it's changed other parts of their life. All these times, periods of time that are open to them where they never would have read books anyway. And so it's maybe fortunate, maybe unfortunate, but just people are choosing podcasts over books more and more. And it, it seems to me when I go by the magazine stands and I you know, pick up a magazine like Time and it's like 56 pages, uh, it's, you just get the feeling that, you know, in, in another decade, I just don't know that, you know, these, these magazines are going to be out there or, you know, they just keep losing thickness, losing thickness, losing yeah. thickness. And at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm told terrestrial radio is having problems too. Yeah, because of podcasts. And so I think what you may see is people who might have gone to the magazine stand in the past, people who might have turned to the radio in the past, now they could find somebody or something they love and go straight to it. They don't have to sit and wait. Well, same thing with TV. You're never going to have uh, a Seinfeld season finale again with 90 million people watching on TV. That period of television is over. 
But YouTube videos, uh, like a basic viral video, will have 90 million views. Or, you know, Despacito, we had on uh, the writer of the song, Despacito, that, that, that song's had 6 billion views on YouTube. Like, it's just insane, the reach of some of these um, more what I call choose-yourself media, which is like YouTube or, or podcasting or even, you know, blogging versus book writing. So it's, uh, the, the reach is much bigger. This, this is why it's so exciting for me to be jumping into the lake right now. And Tim Ferriss, for a year, a year and a half, he was just <laughs> saying, Cal, do a podcast. Do, what are you, why won't you start? And I was scared. Do you know why? Because I thought I was going to have to show up with one, the recorders and the microphones and hook the wires and do the audio check. And, and then, number one, that was going to detract from my connection. And number two, I feared going through it and then checking, checking the sound and finding out I'd screwed the whole thing up. And it was really my fear of technology that held me back. Well, you know, Tim, Tim's funny because, so Tim called me one time in, in early 2014 and um, he asked me maybe a hundred different questions about podcasting. And I'm sure he did this with, with several other people. And then a few weeks later, he launched his own podcast because that's Tim's process, right? He he goes and and studies and learns as quickly as possible, all, and he tries to figure out what are the main points to make something a success. What's his what's his eighty twenty? What's the twenty percent he should focus on to get eighty percent of the value? And then he goes out and creates one of the biggest podcasts out there almost instantly. And then I'm the one now asking Tim for advice about <laughs> podcasting. And the advice, the last, the last advice he gave me was, um, you know, double down on it, triple down on it. So, so we brought on like uh, Steve as producer from uh, we, Steve left from television to podcasting and tripled the number of podcasts per week. But then Tim goes on to do genius things with his podcast. Like I love how he um, takes his podcast, videotapes it puts it on some random channel on some satellite company. Right. I don't know what happened to the TV show, maybe nothing, but what, he, what it allows him is it allows him to start selling the podcast on iTunes instead of just the podcast app because now it's been a, a TV show. So Tim's always thinking of the frontier. He's, he's good. Well, see, th th and this is, this is where I, I got to, I have to start thinking frontier-wise. Yeah, but you do though. Like that's that's how you do your that's how you get your questions. You're at the frontier of of that with every single guest you have. That that that's true, but the, the whole business aspect of it. Because the other thing that's happened is, for years and from the time I went to journalism school, it was just set up for me to go out and do this work that I love, and other people. It were the Steves of the world who took Steve took care of everything. Steve made sure I got my check and I was happy. I go to the bar, I hang out with Hunter Thompson, I do what I love and Steve makes sure the check is taken care of. Now I got Kevin, the manager, but I'm also understanding that it's pretty wise to think like Tim and to be asking you these questions uh, because 
that's what is going to help expand. And I'm really seeing, man, I can do so much more uh, in, in podcasting just because I've got it down to a four-hour work week. Yeah. And I, it, it was in, in the January 2004 issue of Esquire, okay, maybe there were 20 interviews. I could probably do that many in a week with good time management. And you know, all we need is Steve, set him up. Time <laughs> management is the, is the key. That's the, that's the hard part. Cause you do prepare, I'm, I'm assuming for every one. So that takes time too. Takes, it takes a little time, but I'm also finding out uh, that sometimes you don't want to prepare too much. Huh. You want to be able to come. Remember, we're, you just brought that up where you go in curious. If I know everything, okay, now my questions are kind of nuanced as opposed to just basic and simple. Well, but I, I had to, let's say I'm, I'm preparing for you. It's good for me to know where my trigger points are of where I'm going to be curious. Like as soon as I read about how you met your wife, I was curious, well, what was the first thing he said to, to a beautiful Brazilian girl on the bus? Like I need to know that answer. And, and then, you know, it's also useful to know how you open up Gorbachev because I think that's, that's very revealing about you and your whole approach and, you know, how you talk to Kobe Bryant and how you talk to Mah the Muhammad Ali article is brilliant and how you interwove kind of storytelling with, his history with your questions. Um, you know, so there's some preparation that has to, I watch your Ted talk. Like, so I see your general approach to, to interviewing and questions. Uh, so there's some stuff that has to get done. I listen to the Tim Ferriss right. podcast and, with you. Yeah. And I get that. And so then I also know what your canned answers are as opposed to your own canned answers. <laughs> so you go walking on the aisle of the bus. I know you right, right. said it before. Right. And, and there's, that is very good to know, uh, because, you you could have if you wanted to moved me away from that mm. with your question because you could have said well you know he he told that story but i i did a, i did a calculated thinking on the spot because i've done this with other people uh i would say i know i know the story because i listened to it on the xyz podcast um, it was great, a beautiful story. Everyone should listen to that podcast and know the story, but then I'll ask a follow-on. But for that particular question, I thought it was, or for that story, I thought it was so integral to your process. And I don't know how many listened to that podcast you did with Tim like two years ago or three years ago, or two and a half years ago. So I figured, okay, tell us, I figured, I made the calculation on the fly. And you know where we're in with this? I, I, I love this because I was going back and forth with this in my mind. Because as an interviewer, if I had one page in Esquire, I want it to be what had never been seen before. I, I don't want anybody to look at anybody to look at it and say, oh, I, I saw that before. But Gary Vaynerchuk, he basically has turned himself into a 24-7 media uh, mogul i don't even know what what word where he's got people following him and he's just putting out messaging and it, it like it doesn't even matter because if next week he looks back and say oh you know what i said last week was full of shit I, this is what i believe now he doesn't care 
Well, there's there's um there's something like Jerry Seinfeld gives this advice to comedians. Don't assume everybody knows all of your material. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. uh nobody saw your last week's performance <laughs> or nobody saw your showtime special. You could go up at a club and do the exact same jokes. 95% of the people in the audience will never have heard them before. So just do it. You don't have to be obsessed with turning over your material all the time. So so again, like you could keep on saying the same message. Um, and that's why I figured, okay, it's no problem if he says this story. I just don't like it. Some guests, it's so canned, you could tell they've tuned out while they're telling the story. So then I try to make the shift. Uh, I see. Right, you were testing them all. Oh, I get it. With, with what? Just to make sure that it's not rehearsed and it's not to be great. Yeah, I did, and he told the story slightly differently. You didn't mention the goulash, for instance. Right. So, uh, uh, I, yeah, and, and not only that, but I think when I told it, I, it, it, it didn't, ha I don't think it had a rehearsed setup. I think I was telling the story a little more as if I met you at a bar. Right, and we came at it from a different angle. Right. So, uh, uh, so, so, so I had a different kind of power. But to this point, though, is crucial because, like Gary Vee says, maybe ninety-nine out of a hundred people heard me give that message about hard work, and they're they don't even want to hear it anymore. They're tired of it. They're just going to turn it off. But the one person who didn't hear it is gonna lean in and he'll listen to me next time. I, now I go back and forth because some part of me would love to just deliver fresh content all the time, but I'm, I'm moving closer to what Gary Vee says about just using my time to get the most of myself out there. I think that's true because think about the nature of advice. Like you ask these questions to people and, and all I highly recommend everybody listen to all your questions that you, they're all your interviews, your podcasts, read your books. I don't know what specifically you want to, want to mention, but I think advice, you, you, you ask all these questions because you want in part to improve yourself and then the lives of your readers. I would like to live a life more, more like, you know, with a little bit of Kobe Bryant's work ethic or Amy Schumer's sense of humor or Gorbachev's sense of what world peace means to him. I'd like to learn how these people achieve such such high, you know, heights in their career. But, you know, at the same time, it's so hard to follow advice. Nobody really follows or listens to advice. So there's something to be said for repetition to get through to people. Yeah, it's... It's going to be, it, it will be interesting because many things that you've said are already like whirling around in my mind. And I'm sure as I'm walking through Central Park, uh, I, I'm going to be thinking about a lot of the things that you said. I don't, I don't, I don't know that you would have to repeat them, but I'm very curious in the hope that we do get to sit down again, I'll be able to throw more questions at you that will enable you to expound on some of the things that you said. And it's gonna take me to a deeper place. I, I just find, I love this whole back and forth that podcasting provides. I mean, think about it. Years ago, we had Time and Newsweek beating the shit out of each other. 
Like, what are they going to have on the cover? Are we going to beat them? What's their newsstand yeah. sales? And you know what? They beat the shit out of each other, and now neither one of them is like relevant anymore because nobody was sitting around having these conversations and thinking about where things are headed. Everybody was just out to beat each other up. And what I feel about podcasting is there's like this sense of community where Tim Ferriss can call you and you'll help him. And then he starts a podcast and then he helps me. It's, it's really, and I think this is why people want to get in on it. They want to listen because it will take them someplace new. And yeah. you, here's the answer to your question. Oh, I got it. You asked, could you live that life of waking up in the morning and not knowing what was going to happen? And you know how you can do it? I could wake up in the morning and I could put some earbuds in and I could start listening to different podcasts. Yeah. Just one after another, after another, randomly, just to see what, what I was going to learn. And there's always going to be some insight, some really interesting insight in there. That might be the closest approximation I could make to traveling around the world and staying in the same place. You guided me to that answer. Excellent. Well, full circle. <laughs> well, what, what should, how do people, what should people watch or listen to or read or how do they find you? Okay. Well, the, the, the podcast is called Big Questions. And I guess, you know, the funny thing is I'm just learning how to like subscribe to my own podcast. <laughs> because I, I was so old school. I didn't have a Twitter account or a Facebook account until a young guy that I was fortunate to meet set one up for me. Uh, but now, like, I'm all in. I'm all in on this. I feel like this, you say it's inning two, but I, it's like all new water for me. And I love the idea of going on this journey in podcasting and we'll see where big questions takes us. But I really look forward to you coming on as my guest. So I look forward I can, to it as well. I can, I can learn a lot. You already made me think about the world in, in very different ways. And probably one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to take a day. I'd like to see if I could go like 24 hours of just, straight listening to podcasts and see what epiphanies come out of it. Yeah, that sounds interesting. That would be an interesting article, for instance. Well, you'll definitely, you know what? I'm going to ask you which of your podcasts you want me to listen to in that 24 hours. That's so hard because if someone asks you that question, you know, I only have guests on who I really admire, who are like heroes to me. And each one is so great. Like we can't even, if we go back, we can't even say who they're like who your the kids. best ones are. Yeah. You're not going to admit which are your favorite kids. But, but, but it's not even that like, like it is like my kids, like they, they're both my favorite and like, it's not even being insincere. It's uh, like, I could say some, some guests where I really couldn't crack it open or I wasn't feeling well that day, 
But like just the majority of my guests, uh, I just love having those guests. Like, like, I mean, you've done a bunch of podcasts now. Can you really say who is who is the best? Well, what I I'll make the question easier for you. Who is the guest who spoke about the future and what was going to happen to it in in a way that would most surprise me? I don't even know the answer to that because they all speak about, they all make me think about the future. I mean, Jay, you've probably heard a hundred of my podcasts. Steve, oh, Kevin Kelly. You know what? Kevin Kelly. That's uh, it was pretty good. Was- Kevin Kelly, Peter Diamandis, but those are futurists specifically. So that's kind of like their job. Um, I'm trying to think of who else like inspired me in such a way to change my future. Um, and they're all kind of like, Equal, not equal. I mean, there's Richard Branson, Ray Dalio, but again, they're like, I mean, everybody. Again, yeah, every everybody. There's no, I don't have. We, you know, we've had people. Uh, we've had people want to be on the podcast who are like famous and well-known names, but we would say no because maybe they were criminals or they were people I didn't look up to, or they would have been so famous and would have gotten a ton of views, but it's just I didn't want to talk to them. So, because uh, I'm, I'm not by nature a journalist, I just want to make my life better. So, I'm, 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 uh, in, I'm okay. in it for selfish reasons, also. It's <laughs> about well, me to be better, and the listeners too. Because if I'm better, I feel, you know. And uh, Brian Regan was giving—he's a comedian. He was giving this talk at Google, and he says, "When I'm on the stage, I'm not trying to make the audience laugh. I'm trying to make me laugh. Because I know if I'm laughing." They'll, they, they should be laughing. Or if they're not, it's their problem then. As long as I'm having fun, I'm having fun. And so I figure if I'm learning something and I'm being curious and asking the questions that I want to know, then the listeners should be learning something. You know, and so that's that's my, my general philosophy is like that. So, so I don't know who had the most knowledge. I just know maybe with each one, I try to get as much knowledge as possible. Is, is there something you want to know about the future? Or- yeah, but Nassim Tlaib was great because I wanted to learn how to personally be anti-fragile, you know, because I haven't been to a doctor since I was 18 and I was scared to death. Like, what if I actually get sick? I'll probably fall apart instantly. How, how can I be slightly more anti-fragile? And his advice was, to, you know, take a little bit of poison each day or something like that. Wow. Do you know, I, for years, I didn't go to a doctor either. And I remember going to Egypt and I walked up to the Nile River and I just drank out of it. Yeah. And well, did you get sick? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do that. <laughs> then you have to go to a doctor. <laughs> oh man. It's a form of hypochondria to not go to a doctor, actually, even if you're in perfect health. Because I'm afraid if I go to a doctor, I'll get down some, oh, we found something. We need to do an x ray. And now you're down the medical rabbit hole. But I probably should go to one. I mean, you should probably go to one more regularly. I don't know. I'm, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna start. I'm, I'm start. I'm making a lot of changes, and uh, and that's gonna be one of them. But the biggest change is to be trying to think in the way that you just explained how you framed like Cal Fussman's hundred questions in so that it steps forward because like. In a way, I think I was waking up every day trying to 
invent the wheel. Every interview had to be different. And there's, there's something to be said for thinking ahead and creating uh, a, a plan yeah. that will enable you to get the most out of your time and the most out of your life. I, I've always been in, in some way chasing the story. It's sort of like, um, do you know what the popular show, most popular show on cable TV is? No. I don't even remember the name of the show, but I remember the format. Guy is looking to buy a house. They show him an expensive house, a medium price house, and a low price house. And that's it. That's the format. And they've sold that format to a hundred different countries. And it's, and, it's, <laughs> and it's the most popular show on cable TV every week, you know, next to wrestling or whatever. So sometimes like- uh, And you have no idea which one he's going to buy? You don't. Now, apparently he does. They already know in advance, but like you don't know when they film, when, you, know, you don't know as you're watching it, which one he's going to buy. And so that simple format is incredibly popular. And it, the format itself is sold into a hundred different countries. And so, so the agents, the managers, the production company has made a billion dollars maybe off of this show. In a world where nobody's really making money off TV anymore, that TV show wins. The, the simplest possible. It, it keeps coming back to that word simple. Yeah. Which is what Tim was trying to drill into my head for a long, long time. Now on podcasts, like audio quality is important, right? Like you, uh, we did notice a big increase in downloads when we went, when we moved into a production studio and started doing it there. And then there's, if you further the complexity with higher production quality, like a Freakonomics podcast, where you're going and doing, you know, interviewing lots of people and you're developing a story or doing a serial, um, that increases the number of downloads. But I don't know, I like this format where you get, you get 80% of the value for 20% of the work. 80% of the value for 20% of the work. All right, I'm notching that. I'm writing that one down too. And and I, but I do want to. We'll we'll talk about it more on your podcast. I do okay. want to. I do want to promote all your stuff. Your your podcast, big questions. Uh, your 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 column in, in Esquire, which I wish you would do more of, where you're interviewing people, all these great, fascinating people. You know, I don't I, because I use Google. I can't even remember the name of the column. I just Google Cal Fuss uh, and Esquire. It's called it's called what I've learned. But basically, I'm. I'm throwing all my chips into podcasting now. I'm, I'm speaking uh, and that jibes with having a microphone in front of me right now. Yeah. I'm getting up in front of crowds, speaking at corporations, uh, speaking of conventions. I mean, people have invited me to speak in South Africa to help figure out ways that they can change their questions so that they can help educate all these people that don't have the resources to get the education they need. And they found that they can make cell phones for very little money. And as long as somebody's got that cell phone in their palm, you know, they, they can have access to education. But as long as you think of education the old way, mm not going to change. So I, I never, I never thought that I would get this much out of my life through my spoken voice. This is all, all new to me. And that's the, 
that's the water I'm jumping into right now. It's so interesting because I keep telling my kids, like, like take Sarah Blakely. So I have two daughters. I want. I said, take one goddamn day off of school where you're just going to be tested on like algebra or whatever. Come in and hear me talk to Sarah Blakely, one of the most impressive women in history, yeah. and hear her story. But we're so programmed to go to the standard education, they just didn't do it. Oh, so that's, man. That's a, that's a disappointment for me. But you know, there's still time. There's still there's always time. There's time for you and me. We're, how old are you? I am 61. You're 61. You look a lot younger. Than, I thought maybe you were younger than me. So uh, there's still time for, for everything. I, I feel like this is the beginning of Act 3. And I, I can be able to get so much more done so quickly that it's like I'm going to take the next 10 or 20 years and do more out of that, maybe the next 30 years, and do way more than I got done in the last six decades. Yeah, because now you know how to be efficient, productive. I mean, let me ask you a question. 61, I just need to know, how many days a week do you have sex with your wife? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't answer. You're on a Howard Stern territory. <laughs> so, okay. Cal Busman, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I look forward to coming on yours. We're going to be out in LA in April, right? April. So, okay. Yeah, we'll figure it out then. I'll have my wife there and she'll answer your question. All right, good. Thanks so much. <laughs> All right, thank you. Next time on the James Altucher Show. I have that comedy muscle. That's I'm naturally, I'm naturally inclined to come up with funny shit. That's how I've always been. Is part of it kind of is is all of this related to getting over that fear yes there's so many layers of fear seinfeld even has that joke people would rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy yeah yeah you know i just want to say thank you to everyone listening to this please take a moment to subscribe to the show on apple podcasts or Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcast. It will only take a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast. And it will really show people in general that this is a quality show and that it's worth listening to. You can also check out the show notes at jamesaltitude.com slash podcast. Also, if you want to get my blog updates and other updates that I do, sign up for the newsletter at jamesaltitude.com. Thanks again. I really appreciate you guys. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.